Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by Bridget Kennedy to talk about medievalism in Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. Bridget, welcome. Howdy. Would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about these books? Yeah, so I'm a biochemist and I do pharmaceutical safety testing before they go into humans for clinical trials. I read Terry Pratchett all in high school. There's like 40 books and I think 41 books or so, and I think I've read 40 of them. Mm -hmm. And I also do have a degree in history before I got the biochem degree. So hopefully I'm not so adrift (laughs) in this discussion, (laughs) though I never really studied medievalism. But uh, Terry Pratchett was just uh, one of my favorite authors growing up, and I hadn't read him in a really long time. And I I reread him after I'd read a really bad book fairly Mm -hmm. recently. And I I read it after, and it was like a a fresh air, you know? It was so, it was like, it was so comforting and so well constructed. It was just, it really reminded me how much I love this book, (laughs) these books. Yeah, I also read them probably, yeah, about when I was in high school and hadn't read them in years and uh, reread a couple of them for this podcast episode. So my memory of the others is going to be somewhere between fuzzy and non-existent. But (laughs) the ones that we read, I really enjoyed as uh, a spoiler for uh, how how the ratings might go later. (laughs) The Discworld series came out between 1983 and 2015, uh, which was when Pratchett died. So the final book was actually published posthumously. And we'll be focusing mostly on uh, two of his books. So The Weird Sisters, which came out in 1988, and Small Gods, which came out in 1992. You suggested those to me as the best, uh, the best options. Well, they seem to fit the theme well because uh, the you know the small gods is really kind of a parody of the Inquisition and religion in general, and obviously that was a huge part of medieval life as it is mm-hmm. now. And uh, Weird Sisters is just straight up Macbeth parody, so that's great. Yes, yes. <laughs> so yeah, both of them definitely have some amount of medievalism mixed with uh, you know some early modernism. So they'll right. uh, they'll be fun to talk about. The first main section is the enumeratio, or recap. This is a series of uh, books, so I'll just say a little bit about the series premise, and then we can spend a little time just chatting about each of the two books that we read. The premise is essentially that it is a comic fantasy series set on the Discworld, a flat planet balanced on the back of four elephants who in turn stand on the back of a giant turtle. There are some narratives and events in, there are some kind of kind of overarching narratives, and uh, there are plot points in uh, individual books that then matter in future books. But overall, I would say it's mostly as a series pretty episodic, and most of the individual stories are pretty fully self-contained. Yeah, definitely. They're, you, you can, most of them you can just pick up and read, and you don't have to have read any of the other books. But yeah. So yes, which was, as I said, which was great for me because I read them all at some point and don't remember very much about any of them. <laughs> the first one you read was The Weird Sisters, which is, uh, or I'll just first just really in the sense that it was published first and therefore that was the one I happened to decide to read first. And uh, it's about, uh, it centers on three witches, Granny Weatherwax, who is kind of your stereotypical witch, I guess, in that she's just very much, like, I don't know, she's kind of like, older and grump the kind of older grumpy single woman yeah uh, in a later book they do the maiden the mother and the crone and she's the crone mm-hmm. yeah 
Nanny Og, who is, I think, pretty close to her actually in age, but who is very much a matriarch that she is, I guess, widowed, but had a lot of children and has a lot of grandchildren who pop up every now and then. <laughs> she also has an excellent cat named... Grebo, right? Grebo? Yeah. Grebo, yeah. Who is very fat and very mean and fantastic. Great cat. Yeah, I, I, one of the descriptions is that he's a he's an avowed rapist and wants to co- co- corner a wolf. Like... Right. <laughs> yeah, I know! <laughs> That our third witch is Megret Garlic, who is the youngest and who basically is like really into like occult stuff and who's really into like what witches are supposed to be like. And every now and then the other two are sort of like, what is what is your deal with all of this? Why do you care about, you know, these like stereotypical trappings of witchcraft? Yeah, she's kind of got like a research witch focus to her, which I really mm-hmm. like. You know, she's, she, you know, to, for Granny, you can do whatever you want just so long as you sell it. But she thinks there has to be the precise type of apple that will work specifically for the spell, you know. Right, so she, yes. <laughs> yeah, she's very much a purist. She's kind of like new agey. She seems a little modern in some ways. Mm-hmm. The instigating event is that uh, we're in the kingdom of Lankra, and the king, the I, gets murdered by his cousin, Duke Felmont, who is persuaded to do so by his ambitious wife. Uh, so shades mm-hmm. of Macbeth pretty much immediately. Right, right. <laughs> There's a servant who's escaping, and he ends up giving the king's crown and the king's baby to these three witches. And they then end up handing the kid off to a group of traveling actors. They hide the crown in the prop box of uh, the, uh, the actors. And, uh, you know, basically they're like, all right, this kid's probably going to end up eventually taking his place as the rightful king. And he is named Tom Jod, which is not necessarily <laughs> the most auspicious name. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not very kingly, I, I don't think. Or maybe no. it is. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't strike me as the most kingly, but, you know, things happen. <laughs> A lot then centers on the fact that the kingdom, the land itself, is angry about the fact that the new king essentially doesn't really care about the land or his subjects. That mm-hmm. Varens wasn't always necessarily a nice guy, but he at least cared about the responsibility of rulership in some way, whereas Felbit has no real interest in this. Right, he wants the power, but not any of the responsibility and actively hates the land that he's living on. So <laughs> Yes. Being king is clearly vaguely burdensome to him. He also, it's, uh, you know, at a kind of interesting reversal, you know, he's the one who keeps having the uh, the kind of imagined, like, sense of blood on his hands. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's not necessarily that into this. The kingdom is not thrilled. And the witches then come up with the idea that because, basically, Tom John's too young, right? So they can't really do anything about... He can't really come back and save things because he is a baby. So Granny Weatherwax comes up with the idea, and they all do this together, to cast a spell that sends the entire kingdom 15 years forward in time, which I think is brilliant. (laughs) A good way to solve that, yeah. Right. And apparently because it's like a mountain community and nothing really changes and technology doesn't actually get better in Discworld, it just delays like the milk delivery for a week. It doesn't really, no one notices. <laughs> right, right. Yes, I love that just nobody and nobody seems to bat, to bat an eye essentially at, uh, at any of this. It's like, yeah, it's fine. It's basically the same. Meanwhile, however, things have moved forward in time for our theater troupe, which is in uh, Ankh-Morpork, which uh, I think is a kind of big city that shows up in a number of the other books. Yeah, it's basically London. It's uh... okay. a... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, makes sense. 
the king who, you know, even 15 years later, or well, no, I guess not 15 years later, right? Because they experience no time as having passed. Yeah, it's just one night for them. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) So the king, Duke, Felmet, now feeling like, you know, okay, I still need to do something to shore up my reign, decides that it's a good idea to have a play written and performed that really emphasizes how great he is. Mm-hmm. And also to make the witches look bad. Yeah, this is another theme that Pratchett really loves, is uh, focusing on the power of stories and storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea that a play, that a story you could tell would actually inform politics or you know, or even have magic powers within the world of Discworld. Like that's a really strong component is how mm-hmm. important stories are to people. Yeah, which is cool. And it's also I would say the plot is mostly Macbeth based, but that element also has obviously other Shakespearean resonances and that it really connects a lot to Hamlet as well. Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, so we've got a number a number of Shakespearean reference. <laughs> he ends up hiring the very same theater company to which Tom John now in his teens belongs to and you know has grown up thinking of, you know, the people that he was given to as his parents, etc. He hires them, and they slowly make their way to Lankra and uh, are kind of in the process of figuring out this play. And we also have the character of the playwright, Well, who is trying to write the play and keeps saying that something about the plot just doesn't feel quite right. That the kind of play that is representing what we know to be a false representation of events, that it just feels wrong to him as a playwright. Mm-hmm. Which I find fascinating because I don't think Shakespeare had any such qualms. <laughs> no, I mean, Shakespeare wanted to tell a good story and be damned about the truth. <laughs> like, Well, he wanted to tell a good story, but also he, in a lot of his plays, it's pretty clear that he very much also wanted to tell the story that was the story that suited whoever currently was in charge. Right. Like, there's a reason Richard II is a, is a monster, and it's because, you know, the two, you know... A Plantagenet king is not a good one if you're a tutor. Like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. you know, he, you know, Henry, Henry VII, the, father, the grandfather of the current monarch, Queen Elizabeth, you know, he defeated and killed Richard III, so Richard III is, of course, terrible. Oh, was it the third? Sorry, did I say second? I forget. Yeah, but Richard II doesn't come off that great either, but... Yeah, okay. But, yeah, so, uh, you know, it makes it makes a lot of sense, right, that mm-hmm. the kind of choices that Shakespeare makes, I'll talk a bit later about how Macbeth also kind of fits into this, but Quell is a more, or I guess a less morally flexible person related <laughs> to the truth, perhaps, in some ways, and so he's very concerned that this play just feels wrong. So I always wonder how much of a... You know, the author that's always somewhat of their characters, and I always wonder what character is the closest actual Terry Pratchett. Mm. And I wonder if it's not Huell, just because he has so yeah. many ideas coming at him so frequently. And, yeah. like, Terry Pratchett was a very angry person who really hated unfairness in the world. And so I think mm-hmm. wanting truth to be stories, it would have been really important to him, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. That's <laughs> so the play is being performed, and in the midst of it, the witches cast a spell which causes the actors, instead of writing the, of reading the lines that they were given, to portray the killing of the king truthfully, so that it uh, uh, overtly places the blame now on the Duke and Duchess for killing the I, who, uh, by the way, meanwhile, has all this time been in the castle as a ghost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and is uh, attempt. he's not happy about being a ghost, can't go hunting with his dogs when he's a ghost and that really seems to be what he would have liked to have done. Right. 
He spends a lot of the, the book practicing his mental prowess to pick up a grain of salt to overseason the dude's yes. food. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> like, if I were a ghost, I would totally oversalt people's food. <laughs> yes. That really is a great, like, just, uh, just very, very petty vengeance. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's also kind of clear that the reason that he's a ghost, right, is because he has unfinished business, which presumably is more meaningfully than oversalting his food, mm-hmm. finding a way to get vengeance on Felmet and set things right in the kingdom somehow. He's sort of trying to do that. He uh, is manages essentially to communicate with the witches in part actually by, uh, through the cat. He traps Grebo and so they have right, to right. go looking for him. <laughs> he, he continues to be involved post-mortem as well. And so during this play, Felmet finally succumbs to insanity he tries to stab a bunch of people, but it turns out to be one of those retracting stage daggers, like in, right. like in the end of Knives Out. <laughs> yes, <Spoiler> yes. Alert, <laughs> for a movie that we're not covering on this podcast. And then trips and falls to his death. And uh, the anthropomorphic version of death comes to collect him, basically. Yes, I yeah. love the anthropomorphic death version great. of death. Death is great. Yeah, no, death is excellent. And death, death is kind of nicely, sort of comforting yet snarky at the same time. Yeah, he's got he's a professional with a job to do and he's not mm-hmm. gonna be petty about it and he's gonna be nice if you're confused. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't really seem to play favorites necessarily. No, no and his horse is named Binky. Aww. <laughs> Death is excellent. Death is excellent. <laughs> the Duchess gets imprisoned but manages to escape and then gets killed by a bunch of forest animals who are mad about this whole situation. Right. <laughs> At this point, Granny Weatherwax explains to everybody that Tom John is actually the rightful king, but Tom John has no interest in this. Right. He, I mean, he wants to be an actor. <laughs> yeah. If the problem with the kingdom was having a king that didn't care about the, the land, a guy who's from Ankh-Mapork who's been an actor his whole life isn't going to care any better, you know? So. Right. Yeah, the fact that he is technically supposed to be the rightful king doesn't actually necessarily mean he'll be better. Right. I also just realized, literally right now, I don't know if you listen to Hello from the Magic Tavern. I have. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not all the episodes, but I've listened to it before, yeah. So in the arc that they are in or kind of just finished up very recently is actually very much centered on Prince Tom Blaine, who is supposed to take over a kingdom, but who really wants to be an actor. Oh, I wonder if that's related. <laughs> I would bet that's i yeah. would bet that whoever yeah. <laughs> uh that the person who plays and originated that character i would bet that they have read this right <laughs> so he doesn't want to be king so granny weatherwax then tells everybody well actually there's this fool and he's been a figure throughout the book he is a fool uh, was fool to Varence and is now fool to felmet and uh is also uh something of a love interest for Magrat. Mm-hmm. granny weatherwax says well actually the fool is in fact uh, the is in fact Tom John's half brother, so he can be king. Right. It then get, and so he gets crowned. He is king. His name is actually also Varence, and so he's mm-hmm. King Varence the second. And then it gets explained that well, everyone then made some assumptions about you know what Who that meant, yeah <laughs> right for them to be half brothers. What it actually is is that neither of them are the son of the previous king. <laughs> right. <laughs> But that both of them, in fact, were fathered by another gentleman. The, the original fool. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so yes, in fact, it's all they actually, you know, they, they share the same father. That father isn't the king, but they do share the same father. They do. And what I like most about Varence being king is that 
He really tries hard. He wants to be a good king. Like, that's his driving force, is that he's going to be a go- good guy, and he's kind of hapless, and everyone knows it, but everyone knows he's really trying. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and they're very casual about it at the end, that they're basically like, well, yep, I mean, so, you know, by people's norms, he's not the person who is supposed to be the rightful king. Right. But <laughs> he seems like he would care and do a good job, and that's really what matters, and I think the land will be happy about it. Correct. And I think the people will be happy about it, you know? Yeah. 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 We do not get an answer in this book about exactly what happens with the courtship of the fool and uh, the fool now the king fool and Magrat, although I did Google it and they do eventually get together. Oh, they have a daughter. Yes. Uh, Her name is Esmeralda Margaret Note Spelling. Uh, (laughs) Because Magrat wrote down Note Spelling on the the form and the priest read it out loud. And if you read it aloud, that's the name. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great. It's great. It's great. (laughs) And I will also note that one of the things that I find really fun about his style of writing is that we get, I think that and some other pieces of information here and there, we actually get in the form of footnotes. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just my, you know, inner academic, but I really enjoy a, no- a novel that uses footnotes. Footnotes, yeah, yeah. I-, I-, I get the sense, yeah, you want to do like you Chicago citation or something here. You're <laughs> Right, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if you've ever read uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I think I did, but it was a really long time ago. Yeah. Okay. But that's a book that like, it's kind of an alternate history and has a ton mm-hmm. of footnotes that then provide the backgrounds for this alternate history. And it's very fun. Yeah. I think the cool thing about Pratchett to me is just how much he clearly enjoys language. Like, yes. this is a guy who loves a good pun. And I realized as I was driving home today, oh, that's why I love puns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they're really just, like, they're very pleasant. They're very fun to read. They're easy and quick reads. Yeah. We, we took a while for various reasons to get around <laughs> to actually recording this podcast, but I read the books very quickly. Yeah, the books are really easy. They go, they go like, yeah. they're so fast and comforting. and <laughs> Yeah, uh, as opposed to, you know, there's something else that'll be uh, probably an episode that'll come out before this. That was a TV show that was a struggle to manage <laughs> to get through eight episodes of. Okay, uh, yeah. This, in contrast, was a really fast and pleasurable read, and I definitely am interested in going back and reading some more books at some point. Awesome. Excellent. <laughs> the other one that we read for this particular podcast is Small Gauze, which is the one that is centered on the Inquisition or Quisition, as it is called in this context, and takes place in a different kingdom. I'm a little fuzzy about the geography of all this. Um, yeah, it, 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 he, it, it's it's on the same sea that Ankh-Bapork is on, but like the Lanker's in the mountains and stuff, and this is like a coastal city, Mediterranean kind of feel. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as I as I said, the uh, I'm not sure exactly where everything is, is in relation to one another, but that's fine. You don't need to know. Yeah, this isn't really this isn't Game of Thrones where you're trying to figure out where everyone ended up and how they traveled there. This is <laughs> right. Yeah, so uh, we're we're fine with that. So yeah, so we are in Omnia. We actually. Dar, or uh, pretty close to the beginning, at least, we get the great god Om himself, who would like mm-hmm. to manifest himself once more in the world. It's time for him to select the eighth prophet. Mm-hmm. And when he manifests, he doesn't get any of the variety of cool forms that he has previously been associated with. He ends up in the body of a tortoise without a lot of divine powers to speak of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he ends up chatting with a novice monk named, I was actually struggling with how to, with how to pronounce his name because like, I'm like, Brutha? And then I'm like, that sounds wrong. Brutha? I think it's Brutha. 
Brutha? I, I listened to the radio play earlier, and it was oh, Brutha okay. there. So. Okay. All right. So yeah. we'll go with that. <laughs> so yes, the novice monk Brutha, who is the only person able to hear his voice. He has some struggles convincing Brutha that he is actually the god Om because Brutha thinks that the god Om is all-powerful and this is basically a talking tortoise. Right, and, and Brutha is a fundamentalist, you know? Yes, yes. He, and he, he, he believes, yeah. yeah, he believes that everything that's been written in the various prophetic books is literally true and is very scandalized when Om actually talks quite a bit about the fact that various things that Brutha says, oh, well, you said this in the book of the third prophet or whatever. And Om goes, I didn't say that. It's yeah. probably just something they cared about, whatever. <laughs> ah, I wonder if other religions are like that. Hmm. Hmm. So yes, yeah, as, as an atheist, I found that. Yes. That, well, me as a 16-year-old being surrounded by Christian fundamentalists in high right. school, this was like, oh my God. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, that's, uh, so that was definitely entertaining. So we have Bratha, and uh, Bratha is, uh, is, you know, very much embedded in the church structures of his, uh, of his you know, this community. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, is, he frequently comes into contact with uh, our villain of the piece, Vorbis, who is the head of the Quisition, and is not a very pleasant gentleman. <laughs> Now, does Vorbis have, like, a historical parallel that would fit who he is, or...? I don't think he has a pure historical parallel, but one of the things that I do think is really interesting about Vorbis that I'll get into a bit more when I talk about the Inquisition later is the fact that a lot of portrayals of Inquisitors are very invested in describing them as cruel and sadistic and and like and like really like getting some clear enjoyment or even like weird sexual fulfillment out of torturing people and vorbis in contrast is very stoic and kind of bureaucratic yeah which is actually i think a much closer it like is much closer to how inquisitors come off if you actually read inquisitorial manuals and inquisitorial documents. Interesting. Or you've got the sort of banality of evil of the Nazis, you know, where, yeah. where like, oh, well, we needed to design an adding machine from IBM to have punch cards and to, to keep track of everything. Like, bureaucracy, and you, you can do evil things with it, you know, and people just, they, they what's the word I want? They, 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 they separate it in their minds. It's, it's not like they're mm-hmm. truly evil all, all the time. They're probably nice people who have like Hitler was vegetarian, you know. Like, <laughs> and even if they are evil, that it's not always an evil that comes in the form of you know passion and fury, right? That right. it can be very kind of calm and cold. And well, this is just what I think we should do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I found I found that really interesting as a portrayal. So as I said, I'm not. I don't think he necessarily has a kind of pure parallel, but I think he makes sense as an inquisitor in a lot of ways. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So they now have to have this diplomatic mission to Ephebe, a kingdom which is vaguely based on ancient Greece. Right. He decides to bring Brutha along in part because of Brutha's memory that he has, I think eidetic is the more yeah. technical term. I think of it as like a photographic memory. Yeah, I think eidetic is the right term though. Yeah. Yeah. Because he just remembers everything he sees and everything he looks at, even though he can't read. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That even though he can't read, he could look at a book and completely, like, memorize the contents of the book, essentially, just by, like, looking at the page. He knows what's in the book. Mm-hmm. So because of this, uh, Vorbis decides that this could be a useful skill and has him come along on this diplomatic mission. 
Bretha then comes, uh, he's continuing to talk to Om, who he brings with him, and also increasingly comes into contact with Ephebes philosophers, who are, you know, very much, you know, they're very much kind of based on Greek philosophers. They also are, I think, a kind of fun counterpoint to stereotypes that people tend to have of the Greek philosophers as being these very, hmm, I guess, very serious figures. Right. And inst- well, instead, like, because it's based, like, the Didactylos is the guy, and he's clearly based on Diogenes. Mm-hmm. And Diogenes would, like, interrupt lectures by chewing really loudly. Yeah. And, li- and lived in a barrel. Like, he, <laughs> he was just screwing around with people. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And the philosophers in general, honestly, like, they're weirdos. Yeah. Plato wrote a whole <laughs> fucking book about sex. Who did? Sorry. Plato wrote a whole fucking oh. book about, like, the symposium is really just about love and sex. Yeah, huh. I guess it's been so long. I guess that hadn't occurred to me. (laughs) So, yeah, so so I liked that, that the philosophers, uh, that there's some kind of late mockery of the philosophers here. Mm -hmm. Well, so then the big thing about the Quisition in this case is that Didactylos wrote a book saying that the world is a disc traveling on the back of a turtle swimming through space. (laughs) Yes. And And that is the heresy. (laughs) Yes, the phrase the turtle moves in particular is uh, (laughs) a kind of signal of uh, of holding some kind of heretical beliefs. (laughs) So the Omnians are here for what is ostensibly supposed to be a diplomatic mission. There's also this interesting bit, which is sort of 1984-ish almost, that it turns out that the... Omnian leadership has been lying to the people about exactly what happened. That it seems that, if I'm remembering correctly, that they were aggressors who lost, and that therefore they're in a not great position, whereas I believe they presented themselves as having been attacked and also as having won. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, so they're supposed to be here in a diplomatic mission. They're clearly not in a great uh, bargaining position. It turns out that the goal isn't really diplomacy it's a raid to ultimately take over right right and then as part of this once they've done this and Bratha actually is a central figure in making this happen because of his memory he knows precisely the path of uh, this labyrinth which is how you kind of pass in and out of the palace and so he leads Vorbis out where he can kind of make or make his arrangements Right. I, I think they say in the record that the, far, the farthest someone made it into the, the labyrinth without setting off a trap was like 10 paces or something. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> and, and he just, because he knows what to do, he knows exactly how to do it. So Yeah. And when they take over, they order the burning of the library of the of Ephebe, so obvious shades of the Library of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bratha teams up with uh, Didactylos, uh, and uh, basically he saves the library by literally memorizing every book. Which is a very impressive feat. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's at first just a kind of memorizing the pages, but this ends up seeping into his head as actual knowledge and as things that he knows despite not having known how to read these books. I mean, you know, it's a it's a land with magic, so (laughs) I feel like... Yeah, I mean, so it's fine. (laughs) It's cool. It's it's a cool cool little touch, right? That it that this is something that is an experience that sort of changes him. Oh, and all libraries in the Discworld are fundamentally connected by L space, and so mm. you can sort of time travel and things to other libraries, <laughs> right? Which is very cool. <laughs> yeah. So they flee. Basically, they flee. The boat gets attacked. We end up with Bratha 
Um, the tortoise and Vorbis, who is pretty seriously injured, kind of wandering around in a desert. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get back. And while they're trying to get back, Vorbis, it turns out, suddenly is like less catatonic and ill than he had previously seemed to be. And he then basically like kills a tortoise. So it fortunately turns out to be the wrong tortoise. And uh, hits Bretha over the head with a rock, and then uh, you know says, "I'm I'm the eighth prophet now." Right, and he carries Bretha t- back to uh, the capital of Omnia at the time, then, and says, "Look what I've done! I've saved this other novice or whatever." You know, like so right. he looks good. He looks yeah. like a true hero, and <laughs> yeah, and you know, and it's and it makes sense to a lot of people that he is this next prophet. Because one of the themes throughout is that nobody really believes in Om anymore. Right. They believe in the institutional structure, not right. the actual god. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that their adherence is really based on fear in particular, rather than belief. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that Vorbis is prophet because he's a powerful figure at the head of this institutional structure. And so, yes, he should be, it makes sense, right, that he is the next prophet and he's, yeah, saved this novice. Once it becomes clear that Bretha is not going to cooperate, Vorbis sets uh, things into motion to have him publicly burned for heresy. Mm -hmm. And Om then manages to come to the rescue. He, as a (laughs) tortoise, negotiates with an eagle and then drops from the eagle's claws onto Vorbis's head. Killing him. Yeah. Very so- very solid. <laughs> yes. And you know, a tor- a tortoise drop from a great height is uh is is getting is I guess pretty dangerous. <laughs> because everybody has seen this miraculous event, they become suddenly then uh um becomes powerful because people believe in him again. Right, right. Yeah, and uh, and he then gets to uh get uh, decides to, you know, tell Bretha, like, you're you're in charge now. You get to establish new doctrines, you get to be the prophet. They have some kind of disagreements over basically yeah. how, how much like smiting of the infidels essentially there should be. <laughs> well, and, and just the you know what? No one believed in you because you don't didn't care about people. You have to care a little too. It shouldn't all yeah. be one sided. That's the, that's the that's faith in the Omni religion now is that it should it isn't one sided. Yeah, and that people also will believe in you maybe if, if you're nicer to them. Yeah, if maybe you help out uh, when a well goes dry occasionally, then <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, the Phoebians have attacked, which honestly makes sense. They should. They attempt to, to kind of start things with diplomacy, or they attempt to kind of, you know, uh, to kind of solve things with diplomacy. That is not successful. And ultimately, they're able to resolve things by the gods managing some diplomacy that Am basically manages to kind of, well, kind of bully, I guess, some of the other gods into, you know, all of them agreeing to tell their soldiers to stop fighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I, I, I really like that. I, I like when... Um, confronts the other gods. I think that's good. (laughs) Yeah, that was a cool scene. And the other gods are fun. And when he's talking about the value of worshippers, and there's like one who's like a slug, who's the god, and he's got like 42 worshippers and doesn't realize if he lose ones, that's a lot less. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's this real emphasis on worshippers as providing power to gods right which is, uh, i mean just interesting right and because it's uh it's sort of very very similar in some ways to the uh the ideas in uh, neil gaiman's american gods 
Right, right. Yeah. Which makes sense because they were buddies. Right, so. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I, and, and I know Neil Gaiman read Small Gods, so. Right, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, definitely interesting that they uh, that they kind of share that uh, that kind of constellation of ideas. Sabratha becomes the eighth prophet. He reforms the church. He abolishes the Inquisition, ends torture. You know, Oms agrees that, you know, they, they won't smite people for the time being. And Bratha then finally, you know, 100 years later dies. And when he does, he comes across the spirit of Vorbis, who just mm-hmm. like stood there in the kind of metaphorical desert of death for a hundred years. Well, it was probably a lot longer for him, actually, though, is the, yeah. Was the, yeah. Yeah. And Bratha leads him along with him uh, onward in some way. And it also, we then, uh, we then get this a little bit, uh, we get little bits at the beginning and at the end that there are other monks, there are history monks. The history monks, yes. There's a whole yes. book on the history monks. <laughs> yes, whose job it is to basically make sure things turn out the way that they're supposed to in history. Right. <laughs> Which actually is a bit of a, it's a little bit of like a Loki thing now, you know, yeah. the time variance authority. <laughs> yeah, and one of the history monks, Lutze, basically says, well... I figured we could, you know, get to the same end, but instead of this century of war that we were supposed to happen, uh, to have happened, we can do a century of peace instead. <laughs> Lucy, Lucy is a great character, too. Yeah. You, I don't know if you read Thief of Time, but... Not recently, but when I yeah. was reading the book, I definitely was like, oh, I remember there being more about these people right. at some point. Ver- yeah, very solid. <laughs> yeah, so the, those will be some fun other ones to read. Yeah, uh, any other general thoughts about these uh, these two books or about the series? You know, I just, I, I think a lot about what Pratchett's writing is often just, he's really angry at the world and he's deeply cynical, but he also cares a lot about fairness and doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And like his best characters are all going to always do the right thing, even if their natures would, would tell them not to care or to not do something. Like Granny yeah. Weatherwax is always going to do good. Sam Vimes is always going to do good. Like he goes, who watches the Watchmen? I do. I'm the Watchman <laughs> who watches the Watchmen because I've decided I'm going to do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> or like at the end of the book, you know, Bratha stops and carries the guy across the desert again because he's different yeah. and he's going to do the right thing. It's very satisfying having in it a lot is. Of ways, having a, a cup at least one character who is just genuinely really likable and decent. Yes. Especially in a world where you know we have so much fantasy like Game of Thrones which it's just dark have, for yeah. Yeah, and I have very complicated feelings about Game of Thrones, but like certainly it's like nobody's really just a good person. I mean, maybe Brianna Tarth. I don't know, but yeah, yeah. I mean, there's people I like, but very few people are good people. Per se. Well, I think very few people really consider how to how to. They don't think about how to be good with the world, whereas the characters yeah. in Terry Pratchett's book do. They really think about what moral responsibility means. Yeah, which I which I find really nice. And yeah, it's like nice. Very yeah, satisfying. it really is. <laughs> yeah, and I. And I, I, you know, and I think a lot about that too. And I hadn't really realized it until I was rereading this, going, "Oh crap, that's why I think like that." Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and yeah, and they're they're quick reads and they're really funny, but they're also sweet. Yeah. So, yeah. so basically, everyone should go read Terry Pratchett. <laughs> yeah. Now we can talk a little bit about uh, some of the historical elements and inspirations. So obviously, this is very much a fantasy. The inspirations are very, very loose, but there are nevertheless a few kind of fun things that I wanted to talk about that sure. pop up first in the Vera et Falsus segment, and then getting into a bit more detail in the Historia ad Veritas. So first, we are in what is actually literally a flat Earth. Right. 
which I will just note that this uh, this literally is a flat earth, but it does, I would say, potentially perhaps recall the pervasive myth that people tend to believe that people in the Middle Ages all thought that the world was flat. And this is, in fact, not actually the common belief in the Middle right. Ages. Yeah, I don't know why we thought that. Like, Because people didn't really think that. <laughs> like, <whereas> No! <laughs> and it's this weird, also, something that ends up turning into this valorization of Columbus, where the claim gets made, basically, that this guy, he's the only one who's smart enough to have figured out that the Earth is actually round. And no! no. Ptolemy knew the Earth was round. Erastus, or what is his name? Ar- Aristotle. Ar- did Aristotle know that? Yes. I was thinking about the guy who calculated the circumference of the of the Earth. Oh yes, um, Erotostines or something. I'm I'm, not, I'm probably I saying that wrong. Remember his name? Yeah, I cannot remember I've his sa- name. I've said it wrong. I'm sure you'll get an email about this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but so yeah, they there are people who are calculating the circumference of the Earth. A, a lot of people knew that the Earth was spherical. It even seems to have been just kind of popularly acknowledged. I mean, I find it really interesting that there's actually a sermon by a 13th century Franciscan preacher that just basically mm-hmm. casually refers to the fact that the world is round. And it's very much huh. this kind of sermon for a popular audience. And so it's a kind of thing where... If he's saying this in this context, it clearly means that he could say to a bunch of ordinary, not particularly well-educated people, the world is round, and nobody would question that. Right, and I mean, there, there's some really obvious things. You don't have to understand, like, the, the, you don't have to understand geometry and, and orbital mechanics, but anyone can lo- lo- watch a ship going over a horizon and how you see the mast at the top last. You know, you can right. watch it going down. Yeah. You know, and it's not just getting smaller and smaller. It's actively, like... <laughs> You yeah. see less of it. And it's something that shows up in things like navigational calculations. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, the people in the Middle Ages, they, they had science, they had math. Some of it was even honestly pretty close to right. Yeah. I think people could just get into this idea that we are the smartest as we've ever been and human beings have always been smart. Yeah. You know, human beings have always used tools and they've used fun- They've had the skills to have science. It's more rigorous now with the scientific method, but it's not like people were idiots, you know? Right, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, there's obviously, yeah, big changes in the way that we do science, but yeah, it's not like people were just a bunch of idiots for a thousand plus years. No, they still managed to do architecture and all sorts of things. Like. Right. The thing that I actually thought was interesting is that in Small Gods, the heresy isn't actually, from what I could tell about what the shape of the Earth is, it's like this phrase that the turtle moves. Right. I thought that was sort of interesting as mapping onto the fact that nobody ever questioned the fact that the Earth was spherical, that this wasn't anything that, you know, would have been called heretical at any point. But what did get called heretical when it came up in fifteen, in the 15th and 16th century was the claim that the Earth revolved around the sun instead of the other way around. Right, heliocentrism versus geocentrism, right? Right, so. yeah, that that actually was uh, declared heretical. You know, Galileo uh, spent a lot of time under house arrest for that. Right. Cough, they didn't become so much better in the Renaissance cough. Um, and uh, Copernicus was on his deathbed publishing the, his last book, because he didn't want to get in trouble with the church. like Right. Yeah. So I think it's, it is interesting that it has something as, you know, what the heretical comment is that is maybe in some ways a kind of a little bit more closer to uh, yeah, what it, actually it, would have been considered a heretical belief in the Middle Ages. Right. Because it's not just flat versus round. It's it's literally movement. Yeah. And what's also interesting is that uh, in, in the astronomy of Discworld, the stars, the constellations change. 
not just mm -hmm. seasonally, but as because the turtle is literally traveling through space, you get new constellations all the time, which yeah. makes astronomy and astrology are really exciting novel fields, oh, you know? Yeah. yeah. But, but like, so how does the Church of Om account for the fact that the stars are changing? They don't, you know? Right. But, yeah. But everyone can look up and see it, you know? Right. Yeah. No, that's really fascinating. I also wanted to talk about death. Because uh, death is, you know, is is a character, uh, a minor character, but a character in both of these two books, and uh, in some ways has some resemblance uh, to anthropomorphic representations of death that, that you see in medieval art. Mm -hmm. Or what's the uh, what's the Swedish movie with the chess game with death? The Seventh Seal. Yeah, that's it. I think that's a really strong influence too. But obviously, there's a lot of medieval stuff with death as well. Just <laughs> right. Well, and that and that movie is. I, I've actually covered that movie on this podcast, and I can oh. say the depiction of death is one of the very few things that it gets right about the Middle Ages. Interesting, because <laughs> it's one of like the many things that like does this weird timeline where it has. Uh, this guy who is coming back from the Crusades and arrives just in time for the Black Death, despite the fact mm -hmm. that the last Crusade in the Middle East ended like 80 years before the Black Death started. Yeah, what is time anyway? <laughs> right. yeah. Uh, so yeah, so that did not get a lot right, but the death element actually is the thing that I believe Bergman has actually overtly said that he was inspired by medieval mm. art. That's cool, yeah. Yeah, and so that, you know, came out in, in that, and probably, yeah, that's the source for how it then gets represented here. I don't know if Pratchett knew this or not, but in medieval literature, some of these depictions of death actually do have a bit of a touch of dark humor. Yeah. And in particular, there's a, there's a 15th century poem which has a debate between a corpse and the worms that are eating her. Oh, and so the dead woman is like yelling to all of these knights to come and defend her. And the worms are like, nah, like they can't do anything for you now. <laughs> and so, yes, yeah, so I find it kind of fun that he, you know, has this very humorous depiction of death that I think would have been not too unusual or, you know, or weird for people in the medieval past. Right, right. That I think, I think they also had a little, they had a little bit, I think, of a kind of like, like black humor as coping. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, if, you know, people died pretty easily, too, is the other thing. Like, so if, without modern medicine, death is a lot more omnipresent for people. So, Especially because, so, uh, you know, so one of, my, one of my medieval high horses is the fact that people tend to assume that everybody died very young in the Middle Ages. Right, when right, really right. No, like I, the average get, uh, yeah, the averages get very skewed by infant mortality it, and women's correct. death and childbirth. Right. But obviously, you know, there are things like, say, the Black Death. I mean, in some places, the Black Death probably killed, we now think, about two-thirds of the population. Right. The, you see a growing usage of these kind of, of these anthropomorphic representations and literary representations of death as this anthropomorphic figure. That that's mm -hmm. actually something that you see more and more after the plague, when death is, uh, I would say, even more omnipresent in people's lives than ever before. Well, and just as a small aside, just because we were living through a pandemic the past year, mm -hmm. and I was trying to, you know, maybe try going on dates and stuff, but I figured that sexting during a pandemic was very much like the Decameron, you know, like it was a long <laughs> tradition of telling dirty stories when the plague is happening, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can be a nerd, too. <laughs> yeah, no, the Decameron is fun in that regard, and it's like, yeah, some people are just like, yeah, guess I'll do whatever I want. 
Yeah, it's like ten people. They get together. They tell each other dirty stories while yeah. they hide out from the plague. <laughs> yeah, which fair enough. <laughs> The one thing that I will note I found slightly frustrating is that uh, we have a reference. The the Duke in Weird Sisters refers briefly to exercising his droit de seigneur. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, and in a footnote, it says, whatever that was, he never <laughs> found anyone prepared to explain it to him. But it was definitely something a feudal lord ought to have. And he was pretty sure it needed regular exercise. He imagined it was some kind of large hairy dog. He was definitely going to get one and damn well exercise it. (laughs) We are later given further detail regarding the king that the next day he'd send his housekeeper around with a bag of silver and a hamper of stuff for the wedding and many couple got a proper start in life thanks to that. This is obviously a very comedic representation right, of right. <laughs> the Joie de Seigneur, which is uh, the, that French term uh, means literally right of the Lord. You sometimes also see the Latin term use prime noctis, which means right of the first night. And this was not actually ever a thing. Yeah. And it's also like, in, it's in like Braveheart too. Like, oh yes, it's in Braveheart. Yeah. It's in so many things. I have to talk about this so often on this podcast. Yeah. And it's like, it feels like it's like chastity belts or something where it's something Victorians made up because they thought it would be, they, th- they, they again, they thought the past was dirtier than it was. And it's like, no. they. <laughs> so interestingly, both actually seem to have been basically things that they made up in the early modern period often to yeah. make people in the Middle Ages look worse. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but in particular, the right of the first night that it shows up in a couple uh, in some early modern things that are basically about, oh, look how, look how bad the lords were then it's actually something that kind of shows up at like in the French Revolution context as a way to talk about how you know how the how awful the ancien regime is mm-hmm. it's something that in Catalonia shows up as early in the as the 15th century but in the context of uh, basically again saying how you know how like this is like a bad thing that has happened yeah it's always in the context of like making someone else sound worse it's yeah. something you ascribe to the past or foreigners it's yeah. not <laughs> right and in the Catalan context in particular I always find it especially striking because the Lord's obligations and the way those get expressed are not actually, like, they're not euphemistic about how sometimes they are bad. They're actually referred to as the mals usus, the bad customs. Oh. And they include something that literally is called in Latin, the jus melachoctandi, the right of mistreating your peasants. Oi. <laughs> So they're not subtle and they're not euphemistic. So if there was this was ever an actual legal right that lords had to, you know, rape women on the night of their wedding, this would be in a law code and it is not. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. So I think also that I'm sure there were lords that did that. I'm sure there are lords that rape women on their wedding nights. Cause right. And I'm sure have there are lords who raped peasant women all the time. Uh, all the time. Honestly. Right. Right. But like the idea that you would... uh. Oh, so that's in Game of Thrones, too. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, like, it, it, you're right. If it's not in a law code, then it really wasn't. A, and, and they had laws, you know? Like, yes, they did have laws in the Middle <laughs> people Ages. People act like it was anarchy. No, it, they had laws and customs and they it, had complicated so things. They had so much law. Like people, right. who ta- like, people who talk about the Middle Ages as an anarchic period have no idea how many, like, written legal codes we have <laughs> even, like, that have survived from the Middle right. Ages. Yeah, and as somebody who, like, I, like, we have a ton of those codes, we have a ton of contracts, we have a ton of, like, trial records, we have so much, like, there is so much legal history you can do. Sure. 
and I do things that relate to legal history. And so I find it very frustrating, this uh, like weird, like, oh, everything was anarchy back then. Right. But, yeah. So this is something that, you know, they had law and this was clearly not one of them. But yeah, so it's something that pops up in this book. I, you know, he's obviously mocking the concept. I genuinely can't tell from the way he talks about it, whether he knows that it wasn't a real thing or not. Unclear. Very unclear. Yeah. But... He certainly is aware of it as something that people say about a pre-modern right. past. And, you know, is clearly doesn't want to, like, touch on the horrific elements of it the way so many things so uh, viscerally do. Right. Usually not in sensitive ways. Well, like, even Nanny Og talks about how the old king tried to sleep with her, not on mm. her wedding night, but just tried to sleep with her. And she liked sex, but she damn well knew when she wanted, didn't want to have sex. That was the thing. Right. So, like, she kicks him or something. Right. Which, you know? good for her. Good for her! Yeah. And then also, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that there are definitely some kind of interesting elements and ways in which, you know, this is uh, connecting to a medieval past, even while very much kind of having this uh, really kind of original and creative fantasy world. Right. But I in particular wanted to spend more time talking about some themes that show up in various ways in both books about Inquisition and persecution and witchcraft and how that then can link up in some ways Mm -hmm. to witchcraft and magic. So this will be the theme of the Historia ad Veritas section where I talk about a real medieval historical event or phenomenon. We start with the Papal Inquisition, which is formally established in the 13th century under Pope Gregory IX, and placed largely in the hands of Dominican friars. So this is an order that had been at that point established relatively recently, particularly with the goal to combat heresy, that the idea is that they were itinerant preachers and that they were meant to essentially live this somewhat ascetic and uh, itinerant lifestyle that was in some ways very instrumental, essentially, Mm -hmm. that it was because, well, that's what the wandering heretical preachers are doing. And so you should do the same thing. So you're just as compelling, but you should also, uh, you know, preach things that are not heretical. Mm -hmm. They established the Inquisition, so which is under the auspices of the papacy. There had been similar institutions previously run by bishops, but now we have something that's more centralized. And its primary goal is to extirpate heresy. There are a lot of myths about the Inquisition. Mm -hmm. One big one is that its goal is to persecute people of other faiths. That's not what they do. They don't have jurisdiction over people of other faiths. Wait, so you're saying History of the World Part 1 lied? It did. It did. I'm so sorry. <laughs> What's an auto to say? <laughs> Something you wanted to do, but you do anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. And that whole scene, right? It like has this whole thing about, well, pressuring Converting the, Jews the Jews to convert. Yeah, yeah. And then killing them if they don't. But what it actually is, and so that's what, and that's also the Spanish Inquisition, which is different from the Papal Inquisition, that some number of years later, the Queen of Castile and the King of Aragon, these two kingdoms mm-hmm. that form what becomes Spain, they requested the right to establish basically an inquisition that they, instead of the Pope, would control directly. And mm-hmm. the Pope at the time gave them the permission to do so. And that's the Spanish Inquisition. But even the Spanish Inquisition, as well as the Papal Inquisition in the Iberian Peninsula that preceded that, the goal wasn't to get Jews to convert. 
it was actually that a bunch of Jews had already been converted under duress, basically by like an angry mob. And they then said, well, if you converted, even if you didn't want to, it still counts. And so now you have to be Christian. Mm -hmm. And so it's about finding the people who are converts to Christianity who are secretly practicing Judaism. And that is a problem. Isn't there some thought that Columbus was actually Jewish? There are people who think that my my yeah. particular attitude as a Jew is I don't want is I don't want him. But well, fair. Well, fair. <laughs> well, I, I got raised Catholic. You think I want him? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I, feel, well, I, I guess there are still people who want him, but should they? Well, we we don't we don't talk to those people. Those aren't good people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's one of the big misconceptions that, in fact, the main goal of the Inquisition is really about specifically Christian heresy. So people who mm-hmm. are Christians, most of them would probably consider themselves very much Christians, but they practice or view Christianity in a way that is different from what the church, the papacy, thinks Christianity should be. Mm-hmm. Some of these are things that end up being relatively similar to to what becomes Protestantism. Others are things that are, you know, the Cathar heresy, which is sort of dualist, uh, that sees essentially there being uh, a kind of equal evil force and also tends to associate the material with uh, wickedness and with evil in ways that are much more dramatic than what the church would uh, would say, would be in favor of. The also, you know, there are orders that kind of start out as being orthodox that then the church gets upset because they're like a little too in favor of voluntary poverty (laughs) and like a little too critical of the fact that like the church is really rich. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so, you know, various things along those lines. But yeah, but it's really Christian heresy is what they're most concerned with for much of their history. Mm hmm. Which is not the Quisition in the books either. Because the Quisition no. in the book is very much against anyone not believing and not following the rules, even if they're in a different country. And Right, yeah. yeah. And so that's definitely also a, uh, a big difference in that regard, right? right? That they have uh, some efforts where they're actually persecuting people who are Omnian heretics, but it's also, yeah, anybody who believes anything different, regardless of whether they... Like, there's no question about jurisdiction. Right. What's interesting, too, is in the book where it's like, there are other gods, and Om is perfectly aware of that. There are other gods. It's somehow all the Omnians are only yeah. are, mon- are monotheists in a in a in a fantasy world where there are where there, where there were millions of gods, basically. You know? Right. The other big myth, and I already talked about this a little bit, is the fact that the Inquisition is basically just sadistically torturing people all the time for fun. Mm-hmm. When in fact, there's a lot of rules and regulations controlling when and how they are permitted to torture people. So definitely not defending them. It still, you know, isn't great, but uh, it's not sadistic either. And one of the reasons we actually know a decent amount about inquisitorial torture is because there are a lot of guidelines for it that are set down in inquisitorial manuals. Mm-hmm. And there's also a lot of detail given about what kinds of torture were applied under what circumstances in some basically kind of transcripts of inquisitorial prosecutions of people. So my understanding was always also that part of it was people trying to get other people's property. Like if you if you had something someone else wanted and you were in charge, you could... Like the Salem witch trials, if you think about them, are also a property dispute. You know, it's, it's right. adult, you know. <laughs> yeah, so it depends on exactly when and where, where and when, how I guess. it works. Oh. But mm-hmm. it certainly is so the church or the Inquisition, you know, confiscates a decent amount of the person's property if they are found guilty. 
But there are also certain contexts in which basically as an impetus to convince people to inform on their neighbors, they get a, they get a chunk, basically. They get right. a finder's fee. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So if, you know, you have an issue with your neighbor, you can screw them over and maybe get some of their stuff in the bargain. I just think greed is a much more common motivator for people than sadism is. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like... And also, honestly, you know, genuine religious conviction, which, you know, genuine religious conviction doesn't always lead people to do good. It can sometimes no. <laughs> lead people to say, you know, I think many of the Inquisitors deeply believed that they were saving people's souls by getting them to confess and repent, even if they then also executed them afterwards. Right. And that they are doing something good for the Christian community by getting rid of the heretics in their midst. Mm hmm. As I said, being religious doesn't always make you a great person. Nope, it doesn't. Neither does being an atheist, of course, obviously. No, Just... of course, yeah. But there are bad people of all faiths and non-faiths. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the contexts in which we uh, we have talked about, and which uh, some people have talked about the Inquisition, is R.A. Moore, a uh, well-known medievalist, has this book called The Formation of a Persecuting Society, which was published in 1987, and which talks about how in the 13th century, we essentially see this... Uh, in these increasing efforts, some on the part of the Inquisition, some on the part of the state, or, you know, some on the part of just people who are Turks, mm -hmm. to persecute heretics, but also Jews and lepers, and find mm -hmm. different ways to exclude these people, these groups of people from society, sometimes to literally kill them, and uh, that this is essentially a way of kind of shoring up Christian identity. But one of the things that I will note, and this is obviously another uh, big myth about the Middle Ages, is that the persecuting society of R.I. Moore, which is really focused on the 13th century context, does not include witches. Because hmm. nobody cared about witchcraft until at earliest the late 14th century and really until the 15th. Huh. So yes, people talk all the time about medieval witch persecutions. There weren't medieval witch persecutions. They didn't care. People all the time are like, oh, after the Black Death, they killed witches? No, they didn't. They killed Jews. They didn't care about witches. <laughs> I mean, that is interesting because you do, you know, you read about witch, witches being persecuted. And I, yeah. yeah, like, because there was like the Malum something or what? Because I've read Good yes. Omens. And there's a witch finder general in Good Omens. So Terry right. Pratchett was very much aware of... Uh, of of the witch finding, the witch hunter kind of thing. Yeah. Although if I do remember correctly, the witch hunting stuff in Good Omens does actually correctly place it in an early modern and later context. Got it. Got it. So it's not medieval. Yeah, because that's when, because there are witch persecutions, of course, but it's that they're just later than people often think they are. Mm -hmm. We first in the late 14th century start to see inquisitors uh, making connections between heresy and sorcery. Mm -hmm. But it's really not something that becomes a major priority for either inquisitorial or governmental forces until around until the kind of mid to late 15th century. And then it really takes off in the 16th and 17th century. Right. So it's really something that's much more early modern than it is medieval. People just don't think Renaissance witch persecution sounds right. <laughs> Too bad. Well, people don't. People aren't good at d defining historical eras anyway. So right, yeah, and it's also you know it's these stereotypes, right? That you know medieval people associate with well things were bad back then, 
Right. Whereas, you know, and the, the Renaissance term, is rebirth. It's new. It's and then. <laughs> right. And even the somewhat more neutral term early modern, that's still like, well, that makes it modern, right? So things must be getting better. Correct. Well, maybe they, maybe they weren't. Uh, yeah. People are under the delusion that things always get better, and it's not true. Right. Yeah, <laughs> this kind of narrative of linear progress is pretty demonstrably false. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so you you mentioned the uh, the uh, the Malleus Maleficarum, which uh, was published uh, in 1486. So again, pretty is, pretty late. Pretty late. This is why yeah. you have the PhD. I couldn't pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> it also, I can tell you that literally, it means hammer of witches. Ah. <laughs> And it's something that very much is inspired by inquisitorial manuals. It's authored by an mm-hmm. inquisitor. But also, interestingly, it's something that at the moment when it was uh, first promulgated, it was not at the time considered to be... It, it was sort of it was sort of a little sketchy, according to some people. Like, some people are basically like, yeah, don't believe everything you read in the Malleus Maleficarum. Mm-hmm. It got condemned by a bunch of theologians, and I think Cologne... And there are arguments made, in fact, that the text of the book that contains something that says that, like, various people approved it is actually just, like, completely falsified. <laughs> but it is, so it's this text that, you know, is not at the moment when it first, uh, you know, is uh, written and published. And that that's not the point, I would say, where it becomes as influential, even as it will later become. That I think when you're talking about the height of witch persecution, again, it's really 16th and 17th centuries. Mm-hmm. So this is something that is uh, that does continue in Catholic countries after we have the Protestant Reformation. In Catholic countries, this is something that continues to often be under the jurisdiction of the Inquisition. But in countries that are Protestant-ruled, ends up often being something that more often is uh, under the control of governmental state authorities. Right, like the Salem witch trials were a legal yeah. trial. They weren't. Yeah. They weren't related to the church. Like, right? Yeah, you know, because I mean, because there really isn't any institution comparable to mm-hmm. the you know to the papacy in any protestant denominations quite right i mean you, you get the episcopalianism and that's like that's like catholic light but yeah so. and it's like the papal bureaucracy in itself is like a massive legal system and there are people right. who specialize in canon law or church law that it's just it essentially is just also a legal system and a legal culture that just runs parallel to and in various ways kind of intersects or connects with various kinds of, uh, you know, laws being promulgated by an individual kingdoms, even an individual kind of region. By a secular authority. Yeah, by various secular authorities. But, you know, when you got these Protestant countries, it tends to really, you know, the secular authorities tend to have a much greater degree of control. Right. One of these secular authorities is James the Sixth of Scotland slash James the First of England. Right. It's very telling that Weird Sisters is specifically a Macbeth retelling, because Macbeth is really closely linked to James I. And so this is, again, what we're talking about with uh, Shakespeare is having been maybe, you know, caring more about pleasing the person in charge than about Mm -hmm. the objective truth of things when he was telling a story. Right. Macbeth, which was first performed in 1606, that was three years after James became king of England, and catered to him in that both it's, look, here's a play about Scotland, you're from there, (laughs) but also in that it's a play that is deeply concerned about witchcraft, 
Because James had a weird obsession with witchcraft, which started so he which started around 1590 when he became absolutely convinced that he's like on this sea voyage that like was like a little bit rocky, and he became 100% convinced that witches are just personally conspiring to target him and his wife. Well, I mean, if I were a witch, I would, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I, yeah. certainly after this, like after, after I mean, this, it's like. I feel like if you're the king, you're absolutely a target. So right. you know, if you believe witches are real, I can see it. <laughs> yeah, if you believe witches are real and witches are bad and kings and kingship are good, then uh, this whole constellation of things, right, leads you to right. believe that, of course, as a king, witches are going to target me personally. <laughs> So he is uh, responsible for the execution of a whole lot of witches. Uh, Some of the first were Galas Duncan and Agnes Sampson. These are people who, you know, confessed under torture. And their confessions both corroborated and helped to shape James's belief that there is this kind of conspiracy of witches that is Mm -hmm. actively threatening his reign. There are a bunch of other high-profile witch trials. There's even this woman, I did not write down her name, but there's this woman who claims that she's a witch and that she has this magical ability to recognize other witches. Mm-hmm. And so they have a bunch of people that they basically execute on her say, on her pointing to them and being like, oh, she is a witch. And then at some point they like realize she or decide she's a fraud. Yeah. And so they execute her then, right? Yeah. That's how that ends. Yeah. That's what I assume. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but so like a ton of people, like a ton of people get killed. He also, you know, wrote this. He also like wrote a whole book called Demonology, a treatise about the dangers of witchcraft. Mm hmm. So, yeah, so it's interesting in that, you know, we do have this uh, this figure of a king who is, like, really upset about witches and feels per- and feels like witches are persecuting him. Well, you know, mm-hmm. he's per- he then starts persecuting witches, that it very much kind of connects back to James I. So, you know, what I'm always curious about is, like, I know a lot of the time witch trials were just basically picking on an old woman who was, who maybe wasn't mentally all there, and it's not like we had mental health checkups and things, <laughs> but uh, if... How am I going to say this? Like, how many of these women actually believe they were witches? Because some of them truly were faith healers and things, you know? They thought they had powers. Some of them very possibly did. A lot of them were probably just people who are kind of on the margins of society. Right. It's often, you know, hard to tell because a lot of them, you know, when they did confess something, it was under torture. And uh, Mm -hmm. so that's obviously pretty questionable. But yeah, probably some of them did uh, think of themselves as, you know, being occult practitioners in some sense. But yeah, a lot of them also are probably just like, I, I'm just minding my own business and I like paid attention and I know what herbs like help bring down your fever. Right. And I sneezed and your cow died. Like that's not, right. <laughs> or you had a dream and your cow died. Like Right. And yet, as I said, like, and sometimes it gets connected to some of these people who do have a, who do kind of work in medicine that, you know, involve that, you know, kind of medicine that that involves a kind of natural ingredients, you know, which mm-hmm. is obviously not as good as modern medicine but like it's not total bullshit like there are there are there are herbs, herbs that bring down fever or yeah. at, you know, like willow bark helps you with a headache you know yeah. like yeah exactly so you know it's that they learned these things you know by trial and error and passed them down and this period in which we're seeing the rise of witch persecution also actually coincides with a moment in which university-educated male doctors are increasingly interested in challenging the authority of, uh, basically, of, like, women medical practitioners who have this kind of uh, kind of practical training. 
Right. And didn't read a bunch of books in a university. Right. But I'm sure they knew about how to make a nice tea and how to deliver a child, you know, as a midwife. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They very possibly knew were better at that than some of these university educated doctors who are getting a combination of some things that are legit, but also like the four humors, which are not super legit. Not, Not super legit. Like, I mean, you know, you can look at these brilliant guys like Isaac Newton developed calculus or with Leibniz, but separately. But like, he thought alchemy was real. Like, (laughs) and this was like, and you know, and he divided, you know, Roy G. Biv, that's an arbitrary construction. He just liked the number seven, like for the prisms, uh, you know, prisms making a rainbow. Like it's not. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, and even in alchemy is interesting because, you know, obviously they're trying to pursue these things that, you know, something that is not possible, but in doing so, they uncovered a lot of, uh, you know, right, they'd actually discovered other elements and things, you know, the process of doing it, even though it was wrong, actually helped. Yeah, like they contributed ultimately to modern chemistry by doing these various things, even if a lot of them like didn't work out so well from in terms of the ultimate goal. Right. (laughs) But yeah, and so you know, there's a lot of intersections in this period between science and magic and medicine and religion that these I wish there was more involved. intersection between science and magic I you know my job is so prosaic <laughs> <laughs> it just be more fun if you were like eh, I mean maybe if I just like add like an amulet to this this will help it out then it would work yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah but just these are things that are not necessarily thought of as contradictory and that you know medical knowledge contained this blend of theories which didn't always hold water but also things that are rooted in uh, practice and experience. And so, you know, it's, uh, it, it is this kind of interesting combination in that, you know, medieval medicine is uh, not as good as modern medicine, but also not as bad as people think it is. Yeah, yeah, it's, it really wasn't as bad as people think. Like, they could set a bone, you know, they, yeah. they knew how to do, they didn't have antibiotics and vaccines, but that's not right. mean they were idiots. Like Right, and like, people, people aren't like, constantly, ju- like, people aren't constantly just dying because, like, they, like, cut their finger. Right. <sighs> but, yeah, so <laughs> that is some some info about uh, the how these kind of intersections between uh, Inquisition and persecution and witchcraft. So mm-hmm. tying together these two books a little bit in terms yeah. of their medievalism context. <laughs> so this way we can move to the Fabula Nostra, where we each have the chance to come up with a film or show inspired by this one. I definitely had a hard time because I don't, I just don't think I'm as good at this as Terry Pratchett, unfortunately. Yeah. So, you know, I think the problem is I just want Terry Pratchett to still be alive. I know, Because he, you know, like, you think he wouldn't have had a fascinating commentary on TikTok or Brexit or, Mm -hmm. like, any of these other things or Trump? Like, the man was a beast. So, you know, in the 90s, he was writing two or three books a year. I think one year he wrote four books. Like, he would have had something. And it would have been awesome, and we, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and it's so sad that we get to miss well, that we miss out on that, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because it came out. Uh, it's the series is what forty books, and they came out in thirty-two it's, years. Yeah, well, and, and that doesn't include all like the because he wrote short stories, and there mm-hmm. were these like extra like there were some graphic novels, like there was all this other stuff, you know, he was writing yeah. too. I, you know, I guess my only thing is that the, I know there was a book of the science of Discworld. And mm. there was a, a pretty good, the, the wizards at Unseen University have a research 
computer, but it's a, a magic computer. And I would have liked to have delved a little more into like the science of Discworld. You know, yeah. like he'd actually written a book about science and like people trying to make science work in a world where there's actually mm-hmm. magic. I think would have yeah. actually been pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I think that'd be interesting. My idea was just that I think it would be fun to see some kind of showdown between the witches of Lankra and the Omnian Inquisition. So there actually is a book where the witches meet, meet up with the Omnian people, but it was because yes. it's after Brotha. Ah. So they, they're already like kinder, gentler, gentler Omnians, not actually like we're going to try and kill you because you're heretics. Like, right. Yeah. But yeah, I would have I would have liked to see what a Vorbis type would have made of these witches and vice versa. Oh, Granny Weather actually destroyed him. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I think <laughs> that would be awesome. excellent. So, yeah, I would have liked to have seen that. My other thought is just actually, I think that the Weird Sisters in particular could kind of work as basically a standalone film adaptation as a, like, as a Macbeth parody. Uh-huh. And I think that would be fun. I think there's a, there might be a BBC version of it. There's a the, the BBC did a lot of his books. Okay. I don't know if they did this one though, but they made a lot of like made for TV movies of this. Cool. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to look around and see if any of those are uh, are findable. Right. But, yeah, I think I think this could be this could be fun. As as I said, a kind of like big budget movie, and uh, you know it doesn't it doesn't deal that like they're. The books are very, like, function very well as standalone entities right. in that you can basically get everything you need to know about the world to follow the story from the individual book. Mm-hmm. I think there are a couple of books later, maybe, where, like, I think there's another one that deals with the witches later that I think could be somewhat confusing if you hadn't read this. Yeah, Witches Abroad, he specifically wrote, like, oh, this is, like, the third book, and I try and do standalones, but you really should read the other ones first. And, right. You know, because once you're, like, six books in, you're like, okay, read the first ones, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but he's really good at exposition, not dragging it down, because like, I read all those books, and, like, I never was upset that I was getting explained what the Discworld was again, you right. know? yeah. It was always like, oh, cool, awesome, explain Discworld, because you'll always do it in a novel way, in a fun way, and... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, at this point, we can move into the estimatio or rating, where Ooh. we rate these books on a scale from one to five based on whatever completely subjective criteria we see fit. Sure. Do you want to go first? Sure. So, look, the books are foundational for me. I got to do five out of five. Okay. <laughs> like, I will say that he sort of has a bit of a, a Simpsons vibe where sometimes he'll just make fun of everyone and not always mm-hmm. be racially sensitive. Yeah. And that's not in these books, but it is a problem. It's a, it, it, and, if, it, and it has to be a trigger warning for people. I want to give that out there. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was an older guy and he had some problematic ideas about how to talk about race, I think. Yeah. But, you know, in general, his heart is in the right place and he's not trying to be mean. He's just, he, he just is making fun of everyone equally. Yeah, but like you know, and he 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 writes great books for women too. Like he has a whole young adult series that is based for young girls. You know, oh. like cool. Yeah, that's his last book is a young adult novel that had a, a female protagonist as a young adult. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So I'm gonna go with a four out of five, All which right. uh, in part is because I I'm a harsh critic on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> I I don't like anything. I've given very few fives. But, four out of uh, five is like you liked it though. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah. A four out of five is very is very good for this <laughs> podcast. I really enjoyed it. These books, it's a they're a lot of fun. I'm excited to hopefully read some more in the near future. I was actually just recently at my parents' house and finally acceded to my mother's years of requests that we go through the 
horrific number of boxes of books in my bedroom and figure out (laughs) if I want to get rid of any of them. And Mm -hmm. uh, in doing so, I came across, in fact, a number of the Discworld books, which I did not get rid of and which are on my list to uh, reread in the not too distant future. (laughs) So yeah, so I'll give a four out of five. Uh, I definitely recommend them, but I'll take up just a little bit because I think that, you know, there's maybe kind of some medieval myths that maybe, you know, he could have not promoted in a way that he does. But also because Weird Sisters, I think, is great on gender. Small gods, I don't think there's a single woman in the whole book. Yeah, uh, there's Brutha's grandmother. And that really might be a it. character. He just, like, she, talks he, about her. He, he mentions her, yeah. It definitely does not pass the, pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> oh, no. Weird no, no, Sisters no, no. does, but I yes. believe. But, uh, yeah. Small gods does not. Uh, Small gods actually does not even pass the Ift Decker test, the test I invented for this podcast, where there has to be at least one named woman who doesn't die. Ah, nope, it doesn't pass that. Oh, wait, so. there is, there, there, there might be a female goddess. Because uh, th- there's the goddess of knowledge and wisdom, whose symbol is a penguin and not an owl because the sculpture fucked it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is good. But, you know, I'm... I know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not counting tangential goddesses. Yeah, 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 fair, fair. Yeah, it's not like she's an active character. She right. just, the philosophers are talking and debating about the gods and, like, a penguin shows up randomly. <laughs> like... Right. And you're like, oh, I guess she does exist. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I would argue that I don't think that book quite passes the if Decker. No, 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 but... you are absolutely right. <laughs> but Weird Sisters is great. But, you know, he, well, he's an older guy, and I guess he didn't necessarily always think about when he was writing a book the fact that he hadn't managed to make a woman character yeah but like he wrote so many books where the women characters are the strong leads or there you know it's he he's allowed one where he's not doing it i guess (laughs) right so you know it's worth mentioning uh it It is it is i think turn people off from reading the series but it's it's gonna you know ding ding the points uh the point system just a little bit harsh but fair yeah so yeah (laughs) so bridget thank you so much for coming on the podcast no, this is fun. Thanks. <laughs> Are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? Yeah. So I have a Twitter I don't use. And uh, I did do one other podcast. This was my second podcast ever. So if people want to hear me and John McCoy complain about Atlas Shrugged, uh, that's his po- sophomore lit podcast. We did an episode on Atlas Shrugged, which is a terrible book. Don't read Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great episode. You should read the, you should watch the episode instead of reading, or listen to the episode <laughs> instead of reading the book. Right. <laughs> But that's about it. That's all for me. Okay. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on whatever podcatcher you listen to. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah If Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So thank you, Bridget, again for joining me. It was fun. Thanks. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.